You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. Great to see you. Jonah is where we're going to be, so if you'll go ahead and flip there. That is where we're going to be hanging out. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is a relatively short book, four chapters, 48 verses long, and of which the chaplain in the classic Moby Dick said this, Shipmates, this book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the scriptures. Yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? And my hope for you as we kind of study through and work through the book of Jonah, open it up and read through it, is that God would start to work like his word in, deep into your heart, that he would start to massage the message of Jonah deep within your muscles, that that would begin to happen for you, that God would start to do that in you. And so I, and I know when we talk about the meaning of Jonah, that I know that so many people have been exposed to the story, right? And so you can't help but know the story. It's like one of those top one, two, three stories that if you kind of sniff the church that you've been exposed to, but in the midst of being exposed to it, the meaning has kind of gotten hijacked behind the, the story of a great fish, right? And so we've started with this question over and over again. What is the book of Jonah about? And, and here's what I just want to keep reaffirming this to you, that the book of Jonah <clears throat> is not primarily about Jonah. It's not primarily about the city of Nineveh, who God is going to save. And it's not primarily about a fish. That's not the primary props in the, the story of Jonah. And let me give you the words of one pastor to kind of describe what Jonah is about. It'll be up on the screen for you. Jonah is a storied presentation of the gospel. It's a story of sin and grace, of desperation and deliverance. It's a story that reveals that while you and I are great sinners, God is a great savior. It's a story of how a God of great expenditure relentlessly pursues self-righteous fugitive. It's a story that shows that while our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches further. It's a story that shows that God's capacity to clean things up is infinitely greater than our capacity to mess things up. It's a storied presentation of the gospel. And we need for God to massage that deep into our place here. We need for God to give us fresh pictures and for him to take us to the depths of our own sinful of our own running like Jonah. In the story of Jonah running, kind of this whole idea of Jonah running from God, that's your storied presentation of sin. And can you see yourself in that guy, right? Can you see yourself setting up kind of your life in, in defiance of God's ways and his wishes for your life, right? Digging your heels in and saying, God, I don't care what you say, I'm not obeying you. I mean, this is Jonah's heart and it's our heart. But at the same time, we get to see this beautiful story of grace. Grace in the story of Jonah is, is God actively pursuing his wayward prophet. And here's the beauty that I hope God starts to kind of expose us to and to help us see and to savor as we read through and study through the book of Jonah. That Jonah's story of sin and grace is our story. That his story of sin, of running from God, that is our story. And his story of grace, God pursuing his wayward prophet, is our story of God pursuing his wayward people. So I hope that God's starting to kind of bring these themes up and helping you see clearly what is happening behind the scenes in Jonah. Okay, so last week, here's where we started. Chapter 1, verse 1. Um, we started with this announcement where, where God comes onto the scenes and he, here's what God says, or here's what the narrator says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, okay, so in that announcement, there is no wasted words, right? I mean, it is straight to the point that God is about to speak. And this is the God who Isaiah is going to say in, in Isaiah 46, that he planned the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. This is the God that Isaiah is going to say, all of my counsel will stand. All of my purposes, I'm going to accomplish. That God, the God that we see in Jonah that is sovereign over everything from storms to fish, right? God, the king, God, the judge, that God is about to speak to Jonah. Okay, and Jonah is our main earthly kind of character in this. And, and so here we go, God speaking to Jonah, and that kind of sets the, the stage for three or four shocking developments in the story. Shocking verses of verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. These surprising twists in the story. And, and here's the first one. The first surprise is in verse 2. 
the surprising call of God on Jonah's life. Verse 2 reads like this. God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So he gives kind of these three action words. He says, Jonah, arise. That gives the urgency. That gives the sense of, Jonah, this isn't like tomorrow or the next day. This is like now day, right? This is the urgency. And then he says this, go to Nineveh. And the emotional response that a person, like a Hebrew person in this time would have had there, is almost impossible for me to convey with words. It would be akin to, in 1945, you telling a Jewish man or woman, go to Germany and preach the gospel of grace to them. That's the emotional response it would have brought and kind of swelled up in these people. Right? So, so the Assyrians, the capital, or Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. They're known for their brutality. They're known for the cruelty. They're the arch enemies of Israel. They're hated foes, right? I mean, these are hated people by the people of Israel. And not only that, they represent, the Assyrians represent throughout the Bible, this idea of what it means to live apart from God, independent of, of God, as if they are God. I, I love how one commentator kind of comments on this. He says, in the, in the minds of the listening circle, in the minds of those who would have heard this originally, In their minds, Nineveh stood for the essence of human self-exaltation and anti-God power. That's Nineveh. That's the surprising call of God. Now, I just want to stop and just point this out one more time. In verse 2, right off the bat in Jonah, you see the missionary impulse in the heart of God. These people are enemies of God. These people don't like God. These people want nothing to do with God. And this is the gospel of grace. Just like he goes after the people of Nineveh, he went after you if you're a Christian in your rebellion and saved you. This is a picture of that missionary impulse of God. And if you're a Christian, if you're a son and daughter of God, if that's you in here, this is what that means for you. That that missionary impulse of God has been transplanted into your heart. That that missionary impulse exists in you to run to enemies and not away from them. So just a beautiful picture you get right off the, the kind of the bat in, in Jonah. Okay, but not only does he say, go to Nineveh, he finishes that by saying, and call out against them. Okay, that, that's like a technical way of saying, preach what I have told you to preach. Preach my words to them. And in chapter 3, you kind of get the short, simple, and serious sermon. Five words in the original language. It's essentially this, yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That's the message, right? He is preaching a message of judgment onto these people. Now listen to this though. Within judgment, there's always grace. Like in every form of God saying, this is what I'm about to do to you. That's always an invitation to repent, right? It's always an invitation to accept the grace of God and bow your life before him. So you see this right off the get-go, this, this surprising call of God where, jo- where God says to Jonah, I want you to arise and I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach judgment. Within that, the gospel of grace. Okay, now this is where kind of, kind of the first real surprise of the book happens. This is where the big twist goes on. If you're any, like, take yourself back to the first time you read the book of Jonah, the first two chapters, like first two verses. The first time you read it, and especially if you just started in Genesis and you're just kind of plodding along and all of a sudden you get to Jonah. When you get to verse 3, here's what you're expecting to hear. You're expecting to read this. And Jonah saddled up his camel the next day and he got on his way to Nineveh and he preached the message that God had given him. That's what you're expecting to hear. But that is not how verse 3 goes, right? This is where you get the surprising response of Jonah. And this is... This is his surprising response. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he didn't arise and go to Nineveh. He goes in the exact opposite direction to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 3 is the surprising response of Jonah where he runs from God. 
He joins the ranks of the rebels. He becomes this fugitive that just like the people of Nineveh, the pagan people of Nineveh, he is fleeing from the face of God. He has set up his life in open defiance. He has heard the word of God and he has said, God, I do not care what you say. I don't care how you say it. You could tattoo it on my forehead, but I am not doing it. I am not submitting. I am not complying. My mind has been made up. I am resolved and I am on my way to Tarshish. This is the heart of Jonah. And can you see that open defiance toward God in your own heart? See, God God was very clear in his command to Jonah. And he has been very clear in his commands to us. Has he not? Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave his life for the church. Anytime we hesitate, we are defying, just like Jonah, we are defying God. Wives, joyfully submit to the one that God has placed in authority over you. To hesitate is to defy God. Has God not been clear on us walking humbly before him? On how we're to deal with our money, right? On, on, on what kind of words should come out of our mouth? Ephesians 4. Let no corrupting speech come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building others up as fits the occasion so it may give grace to those who hear it. Now listen to what that's saying about our words. Anytime there are words that flow from our mouth that are not grace-filled words, gossip, slander, back, all of it. Anytime we do that, we are setting our life up in defiance to God. Do you see how the depths of sin kind of work in your own heart here? Do you see that the tentacles of sin reach really deep inside of you? That like Jonah, we are defiant people. And we said this last week, but every act of sin is an act of treason against God. See, when we sin, it's not us acting like there is no God. When we sin, it's the result of us trying to act like we are God. That is sin. Every act of defiance is treason. Every act of sin is us looking at God and saying, God, I know that you have the rightful rule and reign in my life, but I'm going to do everything I can to usurp it and to overthrow it. I love what Abraham uh, Kuyper kind of commenting on this in Jonah and this in us, this tendency toward rebellion in us, what he says. He says, our heart is continually inclined to rebel against the Lord our God. So ready to rebel that, oh, so gladly were it, but for a single day, we would take the reins from his hands, the reins of his kind of supreme rule, imagining that we would manage things far better and direct them far more effectively than God. That is our heart. That's not just Jonah's heart. That is the heart of every rebellious runner. It's a universal reality for all of us in this room. Okay, now this is where we camped the other day, last week. We're going to take one step further and and camp on the next part, verse 4 this week. Now now verse 3 sets the stage for the next surprising twist, right? So so verse 3 sets the stage for what God is about to do. So let me just ask you the question. I think in between verse 3 and 4, there's this question that needs to be asked. If you were God, what would you do with Jonah? Right? I mean, what would you do with this guy? With this rebellious prophet? I mean, you have just spoken clearly to him. And he has looked at you and given you the finger. Right? I mean, this is what's just happened. I mean, he he has walked away in defiance of you. See, if I was God, this, this whole story would play out a lot differently, right? I mean, if I were God, this whole thing would look like this. It would probably be about three verses long. And it it would sound more more of something like this. Okay, so verse 1, Rodney, like his word appears to Jonah, comes to Jonah. Verse 2, it's go, Jonah, preach to Nineveh, call out against it, do all that. Verse 3, Jonah arises to go to Tarshish. Goes to Joppa, pays his fare, gets on his boat, does his thing. Then there would be this little footnote at the end of verse 3. Just a little footnote, that's all it would be. And it would say, and as Jonah got on the ship... Jonah died. Jaws 1, 2, 3, and 4 were filmed right outside of, of Joppa, right? I mean, that's where it all went down. See, it would be a four, like a three-verse, one-footnote story. But that is not the grace of God. That is not how God treats Jonah, right? 
I mean, when you think of, of God and his pursuing grace in Jonah, or in the story of Jonah, you see that he not only wants his mission accomplished, but he wants the heart of his wayward prophet. So, so this sets the stage for verse four, this surprising response of God that we see in verse four. Now, now, so watch the words here. In verse four, we see the surprising grace of God where Jonah runs from God. That's a picture of sin and the surprising grace. Grace is pictured as God running toward his rebellious and wayward prophet. Verse four, verse, like the first three uh, words here it says this, but the Lord. This is the signal of grace. This is the signal that God's grace is on the way. When you look at the Hebrew construction of verse 4, that sentence, it is out of the norm. And that construction, if you were a Hebrew reader, you would get a quick sense of what God is bringing, like the narrator is bringing to your attention, is now the focus is running to God, the, the, the subject, our attention focuses to God and his response to his rebellious prophet. Those first three words signal that grace is on the way, that God is about to make a counter move, that God loves Jonah too much to let him win, that God cares about Jonah too much not to come to him in his rebellion. So we're about to see a picture of the grace of God. When you read verse 4, you are being introduced to this deep, rich, biblical vein of the grace of God. That this grace of God that, that the mind runs thousands of feet deep into. That this idea of the grace of God that, here's what grace means. It means that it's unearned, that it's God's unearned favor and affection towards you. That's grace. That you could never deserve it. You could never do enough things to make yourself earn it. It's God's unearned and your unmerited. It's the favor and grace of God towards you. So this is what you see playing out in verse 4. Verse 3, Jonah arose and he fled the Tarshish. But the Lord, verse 4. He goes down to Joppa, but the Lord. He pays his fare, but the Lord. He gets on the boat headed to Tarshish. Verse 4, but the Lord. This is the pursuing and relentless grace of God on display for you. Okay. Now, verse 4, I think, has two surprises in it, though. It doesn't just have the pursuing grace of God. That's surprise one. And now, now let me just set the stage for the surprise two in saying this. That I, I think if you come to Stonegate regularly, you're going to hear enough times us talk about this surprising grace of God that comes to us in our rebellion, that tracks us down even when our hearts are wayward. You're going to hear that enough because it's everywhere in the Bible. We can't help but preach it because it's everywhere that we read, right? And so you're going to hear that a lot. And so I work really hard. I labor at preaching to try to give you fresh ways to keep the grace of God amazing in your life. And one of my hopes for you is that God's grace would always be amazing to you. That you would never get past the grace of God. But but this grace of God, this pursuing grace of God, I, I think for most of us, it's a surprising thing, but it's a familiar thing because we hear it talked about a lot. Okay, and that, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But here's what I think the second surprise in verse 4 is, is the form that this pursuing grace of God comes to Jonah in. So, so maybe to articulate it this way, here, here's surprise number 4. The second surprise in verse 4 is this. That the grace of God comes to Jonah in the form of a storm. See this? That that, that storm is grace from God. Okay, so, so maybe you could think about it this way. Or maybe I can make a statement that will help clarify this. I am convinced that almost all Christians in our culture have a view of grace that is so shrunk and shriveled that the only thing they can see grace like the grace of God applying to is what we see as kind of the benefits, what we see as, as God doing good things, what we perceive God doing as the good things in our life. Right? That, that when we think of grace, we think of, I got the job. That I got the promotion. Our investments are doing great, right? We're pregnant. And that's like grace until that baby gets there and then you're like, oh no. What just happened, right? 
So, so, but this is the grace of God for us. It's this one-sided grace. This grace that, that only encompasses what we perceive as best for ourselves. It's this grace that, that thinks that only the, the things that we kind of perceive as good things flowing into our life, that that's the only thing grace kind of encircles and brings in. But, but here's what Jonah is showing us. That the grace of God is larger than just the good things that come into our life. The grace of God also encompasses storms. The grace of God also encompasses those things that aren't real pleasant for us. That we would never plan for our life. That we would never kind of schedule into our life. That the grace of God even goes there. Okay, now think about Jonah. This storm, verse 4, is a nightmare for this guy, right? Jonah is on a Mediterranean cruise. And all of a sudden, God whips up the wind and he hurls a hurricane at him. That is not a good day for anybody, right? This is a bad day. If Jonah could think of like a worse nightmare at this single point in his life, this would be at the top of his list. Something is keeping him from his desired destination, right? This is a bad thing for Jonah. Jonah is not happy about this storm. But listen to me. This storm is the grace of God for Jonah. The grace of God even encompasses things like a storm that is ravaging them. Now, now look at the, the size of this storm here. But the Lord, the God hurled this great wind upon the sea. And look at what it says about it. It's a great wind. Verse 4, it was a mighty tempest. Verse 4, the, the ship threatened to break up. Verse 5, it was so bad that the mariners were afraid. Like, I love what, what one commentator said on this. He said, aboard this ship, pantheistic panic broke out, right? This is what's happening. This is the size of this storm. And, and here's what this storm kind of reveals about God and his grace. This storm reveals the size of God's grace. Do we see this? This storm shows us that God's grace is large enough to take in all of those things that we perceive to be good in our life and all of those things that we perceive to be bad in our life. God's grace goes both ways. That God is being gracious to Jonah and sending a storm that just might kill them all. That's grace from God. Okay, so this is where I think we need to have just a good conversation as a church family here. I see one of my primary roles as a pastor and preacher of a people to prepare us for the storms of God. As long as we live in a broken world, as long as we're broken people and we live within the midst of other broken people, we are always going to be having the storms break against our life. It's just a, it's just a reality of life. And when I say storms, here's what I mean. I mean things like unexpected deaths. I mean things like cancer. I mean things like I lost the job. I mean things like sickness and disease. I mean disabilities. I mean everything that befalls us. That's the size of God's grace. That's the size of storms. And, and I think it's important for me to prepare us for those things. To give us a view that will help us live in the midst of those things. And the best way I can prepare you for the storms that are going to befall all of us is to expand your view and your size of the grace of God. That the grace of God covers everything that comes into your life. Maybe I could say it this way. That everything that befalls a believer... A son or daughter of God, everything that befalls you, everything that comes against you, every storm that breaks against your life is grace from God. Everything. You say, how can you say that? Here's why I can say that. Because the gospel is the good news that the storm of God's anger and wrath rested on Jesus so now all the storms we face, they're no longer wrath and anger. 
Now, every storm that we face comes from the affectionate hand of God. The gospel is the good news that the all-powerful God of the universe, the God that Psalms 139 says, knit you together, planned your days, ordained your days. Acts 17, it's going to say that he allotted the times and the place that you're going to dwell. The God that controls everything, the God that in Jonah 1-7 even controls the rolling of the dice, even down to the details of your life, that all all-powerful God of the universe. The gospel is the good news that he is not just all-powerful, but that that God is also your father. And that from your dad's hand, if you're an adopted son or daughter of God, from your dad, from your God's hand, comes nothing but grace into your life. Nothing but those things that at the end of the day will not turn out for your good. See, the gospel is the good news that Romans 8.28 is true. That you can hang on to it with everything in you in the midst of storms. The gospel is the good news that God works everything out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that everything, that all in Romans 8.28 in the Greek really means everything. Right? That means that everything that befalls you is God acting for your good. Even those things that hurt at the at the time, right? Even those things that feel like displeasure and feel painful, those things are God, God's grace to you, meant to, to benefit you. That we're saying all things that befall us because of the gospel that we can look at and say through grace. That the gospel transforms the way we look at suffering and the way we experience the storms of life. And that is not a trite saying. It is life or death in the middle of a storm. I want to give you some examples of this. That because of the gospel, everything that befalls us is grace from the hand of God. Um, This has been a couple of months ago. A guy sent me a minute and a half video of a guy named John Knight and his wife. John Knight is uh, one of the guys on staff at a, a ministry, a national ministry called Desiring God. I'd encourage you to look it up. There's all sorts of good resources on there for you. But he's he's on staff there, and uh, this has been years ago. He and his wife were, uh, were there, she was pregnant. She just had the baby, and the nurse takes the baby and immediately says, I think we have a problem with his eyes. And they, they found out just soon after that their baby Paul was blind. And just within a few moments after that, they realized that he had a cleft palate. They're going to have to deal with a, another kind of issue there. And then in the days, weeks, months, years to come, they realized that he is also autistic, that he has growth hormone deficiency, and he's likely going to have severe mental retardation. Okay, I want you to hear the words of John Knight and his wife describe this situation and like every time I, I like I can't help but just busting up on the inside every time I I hear him talk but this is what he said in this video this is how God gripped us this is how God was merciful to us he has given us something very very precious through our son our son is a gift It's because he gave us this little boy who is so, so different from every other little boy I've ever met. I've never met another boy like Paul. It's through Paul that God has done this work in our heart. And and listen to this last couple of phrases. He says, this is grace. This is grace. Do we see this way? I mean, in the midst of that, do we see such a beautiful and big picture, the size of God's grace that we could look at something that feels painful and say, God, I know that I can trust you more than what I feel. I know that because of the gospel, I can trust that you are a good dad for me and that you are giving me what's best for me. I mean, isn't that so hard to see in the middle of that? I mean, isn't that difficult for us? We've got a two-year-old, Hannah. She loves dessert, right? I mean, what two-year-old doesn't like cheesecake? Okay, so now picture this scene. She's eating cheesecake, and we say, no, you cannot have cheesecake. I'm sorry. We, We cut the cheesecake off, and instead we push before her a bowl of carrots. Now imagine, like, what's going on in the mind of a two-year-old, right? 
Not only are we taking from her something that she wants in her life, we are also giving, this is probably more painful, we're also giving her something she doesn't want. But see, if she had eyes that could see, she would know that as a good mom and a good dad, this is grace for her. This is us being good to her. We're not robbing her. We're not trying to kill her. We are being gracious to her. And so is our mind with God, right? That in the midst of that, we are the two-year-old that reaches for that cheesecake as if our life depends on it. I'll give you another one. Um, one of the guys in our circle of, of churches in this area is on the north side of Dallas. His name is Matt Chandler, um, pastor of a church called The Village. And a year ago, this Thanksgiving, um, he has a seizure, um, passes out. They take him to the, to the hospital and do scans on his brain, realize he has got malignant um, brain cancer and not a good one. Um, they, they immediately do surgery just as quick as they can, but they can't get all of it. They, they know that there's some left in there. So they start pumping chemotherapy through that. And in the midst of his family, just, I mean, their heart being wrenched in the middle of this, right? Um, he, he basically decides, I'm going to take this, this suffering, like our trial here, I'm going to take that public. He's on a national stage. So I'm going to take this before people and let them watch the gospel kind of work in the midst of this. And over and over, as he's kind of relating just stories and updates, here's what you consistently hear him say. This has been a mercy from God for us. That this cancer that just might kill me is a grace from God. That God has used it to cut out things more serious in my heart, like self-reliance, like the illusion that I have control. This is grace for, from God. This is from the good hand of God for us. This is not the punitive wrath of God trying to destroy. This is the pursuing affection of God. See, when we start to, when we start to see the gospel as this big in our life, it starts to help us relinquish control of our life as if we know what's best. It starts to, to open our hand so we don't have like this grip on our rights and the rights of our family the rights of our sons and daughters, the rights of our wife and husbands. So now we can start to open up our hands and say, God, my main goal is not to live to 300, right? My, my, my main goal is not to be healthy. My main goal is not to be, well, my main goal is you. And God, I'm going to trust that in the gospel, you will give me every good thing that I need. I'm going to trust that. See, this is what the gospel does for us. Jonathan Edwards um, is considered by most the greatest American theologian that we've had thus far. Um, lived in the 1700s. He's one of the guys responsible for the first and second great awakenings up in the Northeast. And he was cut down at the age of 54 from a smallpox and vaccination. Twelve days later, his, his wife, Sarah, writes a letter to Esther, their daughter. And, and here's what Sarah says 12 days later, after she just lost her husband. What shall I say? A holy and a good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Listen to this. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. See, she has a view of the sovereignty of God. That like Job, it is the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. That like the dice, God is in control of it all. He is sovereign over everything. The Lord has done it. He has made me, and listen to this, He has made me adore His goodness. See that sweetness and tenderness there? He has made me adore His, God's goodness that we had, Him, my husband, for so long. But my God lives and He has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left to us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. Your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. See, what allows us to have that sort of a tenderness, that sort of a resolve, that sort of a stability in the midst of storms? It is a view of the gospel that knows that God is sovereign over all. And that everything he gives his sons and daughters is grace for us. Now, let me ask you the question. Do you believe that? I mean, see, over and over, like I've seen how hard that is in the midst of these things to start believing. 
So this is one of those things, like, this week as I prepared for this, for, for the, kind of this message, I, my plan was to do the whole chapter of, kind of finish the chapter of Jonah 1. And God would not let me get past verse 4. He would not let me get past making sure we as a church sit on the size of God's grace. That God's grace encompasses everything that comes our way. That this is all the grace of God. Because here's what's going to happen in the midst of this church family. We are going to have the unique privilege of walking by and beside one another as God, as the winds of God's grace blow into our lives. And that grace is going to take the form, a thousand different forms, right? I mean, that grace is going to take the form of a paddle. By the way, like we have a little wooden spoon that is our spanking paddle at our house. We call that paddle grace, right? So it, it may take the form of a paddle. And it, it may take, the, you, you see the, the picture here. It may take that form. Or it may take the form of paradise. It, it may take the form of a candlelight dinner with your wife or cancer. It can take all of those forms. And we had this unique privilege of walking beside one another as the winds of grace blow into our life. And then we had this beautiful kind of responsibility to each other to continually remind one another that God is sovereign. Nothing befalls us outside of his purposes and plans. And God is good. It's all a grace from God that all things he gives us go to work to our ultimate good. So we, we've got the responsibility to make sure that we have a view of that grace so we can love each other in the midst of these storms. So, so this grace of God, this storm reveals the size of God's grace, but it also reveals this, the severity of God's grace. It reveals that God spares no expense in coming after his sons and daughters. Hey, read with me again here. Look at verse 4. The Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind. Okay, that's not like a, a little small thunderstorm. That is like hurricane force wind happening here. A great wind. Verse 4. It was a mighty tempest. Verse uh, 4 again. The ship threatened to break up. Lives are at stake with this. Verse 5. It was so bad that hardened mariners were terrified. That all of them, they're throwing cargo over the ship, right? They're, they're scared for their life. This is the pursuing grace of God. It comes sometimes in a severe and a threatening and a loud way to our life. And you might circle that word hurled in that story. That is the same word used when David, or when Saul throws, he hurls the spear at, at David. Right? This is what's happening here. The narrator of Jonah is telling us that God is the one who has whipped up this mighty wind and he has thrown it with pinpoint accuracy at the heart of Jonah. That this is the severity of God's grace. I love what one pastor said. This just goes to show you that God is not tame. He doesn't do the expected. Okay, so now think about what's happening here. You've got Jonah. Jonah is a man on the run from God. He has set himself up in defiance to God, and he is running with every bit of energy in him away from him. And listen, Jonah really thinks he is running to freedom, and he can't see that it's slavery. Jonah thinks that he is running to hope. But he can't see that he's running to despair. He thinks he's running to life, but he cannot see. He just doesn't have the clear clarity to see that he's actually running to death. He is bought into every deceitful lie that sin offers. He really is believing that promises of sin that never deliver. I mean, he is hook, line, and sinker here. So the, there's two ways you could look at, kind of with that in mind, there's two ways you could look at this storm. Here's way number one you could look at it. Way number one, you could say this, that this storm is, is a picture of the wrath of God, the punishment of God that, that is going to kind of kill Jonah, basically. Because that's way number one. That would be a wrong way, by the way. Here's way number two that you could look at it. That this storm is a portrait of the pursuing grace of God that hunts his wayward prophet down. That is what's happening in Jonah chapter one, verse four. I love this statement. I want you to kind of get this in your mind. That on the cross, this is the good news of the gospel. That on the cross, Jesus, he took 
every bit of the punishment of God for you. So now as a son and daughter of God, we get nothing but the pursuing affection of God. Do you see that? This is the beauty of the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus takes every part of God's punishment and because of the gospel, on this side of the cross, his children get every part of the pursuing affection of God. See the storm, I love how one author said, the storm is not a picture of God's wrath against sin. The storm is primarily a picture of God's pursuing grace that comes after saints in the middle of their sin. This is what's happening. God is coming after his prophet severely, loudly, powerfully. This is a picture in Jonah chapter 1 verse 4. It's a picture of the intervening grace of God. You know what that intervening grace of God looks like? That grace of God that just will not let you win. That grace of God that will not let his sons and daughters sin successfully. That grace of God that is saving Jonah from Jonah. This is what's happening with the storm. God is saving Jonah from his own destruction. God is saving Jonah from himself. This is the portrait of what's going on here. It's the storied presentation of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6. That who the, like, whom the Lord loves, he also disciplines. It's a storied presentation of that verse working itself out. That God loves Jonah too much to allow him to win. He loves him too much to let him go. That he will always hunt down wayward and rebellious sons and daughters. I I love the story or kind of this imagery that Tim Keller gives of this this scene in Jonah chapter 1. He used the illustration of a doctor's office. Consider like... Be a fly on the wall in the doctor's office. A man, a patient comes into the room and the doctor says, for you have got a terrible disease. This thing is going to kill you. I mean, this is a deadly disease. But here is the great news. And he pulls out of his coat a cure. He pulls medicine out and he says, if you will eat this medicine, if you'll put this into your mouth, this will heal you. You will be safe from this disease. And and then imagine the patient looking back at the doctor and saying, are you crazy? I don't have a disease, first of all. But that medicine, that is not a cure. That is poison. And he runs out of the office. Now picture this scene. Picture you are the doctor and it's your son, your daughter who is the patient. And you give them that news and your son or daughter runs out of that room as fast as they can away from you. What would you do there? You know what I'd do? I'd do whatever it takes to tackle them, to subdue them. I would knock their front teeth out if that's what it took to get the medicine in. Right? You would too. Because a dentist can fix that, right? I mean, that's repairable. You would do whatever it takes. And I love this imagery that Tim Keller uses. He says, it's the tender violence of God. See, in that moment, you would use tender violence to do whatever it took to get them the medicine. And Jonah chapter 1 verse 4 is God's tender violence where God is doing whatever it takes to track down and subdue his wayward prophet. See, here's the beauty of the gospel. That behind every hard hand that a storm presents is the soft and affectionate heart of God. You hear, you hear that? Behind, behind, the, behind the hard hand that every storm presents is the soft and affectionate heart of God. That's the good news of the gospel. So, so maybe I can ask you this question. Runners in the room, which is all of us to some point. See, the, the, like the question is not, is God going to track you down? That's not the question. The question goes like this. How much tender violence are you willing to endure? I mean, how much pain do you want? 
And what do you want God to walk you through? What sort of severe storms do you want God to bring in your life? What sort of pursuing grace do you want God to come with at you to get you to repent, to get you to turn, to get you to stop running? See, that's the question. Is how much pain do you want? God loves you enough to inflict whatever the amount of pain is, to use whatever the amount of tender violence it takes to subdue your rebellious heart. See, the storm reveals this, like this severe, like the severity, the severe picture, the severe portrait of the grace of God. And last thing, and we'll close it with this. The storm points us to the Savior, the ultimate expression of the grace of God. So the storm is really there to, to point us forward. The supreme example of the size and severity of God is Jesus. Jesus is God's statement to the universe that I will relentlessly hunt down and pursue every wayward son and daughter. That, that's the statement that God makes in Jesus. I love what one author said. It's God's affection for Jonah that sent the intervening storm. And it's God's affection for us that sent an intervening Savior. That we are all born on the run from God as if freedom exists apart from Him. Right? We are all born with a, with a hand up to God. We are all born with a posture of defiance toward God. And the good news of the gospel is that God in the gospel runs to his enemies, not away from them. The good news of the gospel is that regardless of how hard you run from God, he is always faster. He always is. Like this is the great news of the gospel. Jesus is God's announcement to the world, to all of his sons and daughters, that regardless of how hard you run, it is impossible to hide from the pursuing grace of God. It's impossible. Like the good news of the gospel is that every storm from God is sent from the gracious hand of God. The good news of the gospel is that the storm of God's punishment of his wrath and anger was laid squarely on Jesus. So now we, on this side of the cross, we can know that the storm of God's pursuing affections lies squarely on us. Isn't that beautiful to know that? That behind every hard hand that a storm presents is the kindness and affection of God. I'll end with one author's kind of insight and pointing out a link between Jonah chapter 1 and Luke verse 4. Luke verse 4 will be up on the screen for you. This is God, uh, this is Jesus announcing kind of his ministry that he's, he's inaugurate, uh, inaugurating his ministry. He's starting it here. And this is what he says. Luke chapter 4 verse 18. Jesus publicly saying, ministry beginning. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me, and this is what Jesus does for people, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is Jesus, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then listen to what this author says about that. Everything Jesus said He would do the storm came to do for Jonah. The storm was good news to Jonah, who had become spiritually impoverished. It was there to open his blind eyes and to liberate him from self-oppression. And just as the storm was sent to release Jonah, so Jesus sets free enslaved captives like you and me. And may we as a church body have a view of grace that is that big and biblical. Amen? Let's pray. The gospel is the good news that the storm of God's anger landed squarely on Jesus. And now the tender violence of God, the storm of God's affection, lands squarely on us. Do you have a view of grace that that's big? Do you have a view of grace do you have a size? Like, do you see the depths and the width of how big God's grace is? That it encompasses everything 
every storm that befalls believers. Do we have that view? Are we believing the gospel to the point that we can say along with the Puritans that even when we can't trace God's hand, we can trust God's heart? Do we believe the gospel to the point that we can affirm that the gospel is the great news? That everything that comes from the hand of God is grace for us. I pray that we'll start to. I pray that we would be those sort of people in the lives of others as they walk through storms and that we would have this view of grace as we experience in them ourselves. And for the runners in the room, do we see the severity of the grace of God? Do you see that God is relentless in his pursuit? That God spares no expense as he tracks down his wayward sons and daughters? That the question is not whether or not God will catch you? God's pursuing grace will always outpace your running. The question is how much pain, how much tender violence will it take? And may this be a moment for us as we as we think through and as God exposes these pockets of resistance in our heart, may this be a moment where we where we say enough. God, you've loved me enough on this. And may we repent of our rebellion. May we stop running. May we see that the cross is God's cosmic statement that he is for us, that he deals graciously with us. And may we run to him. I pray that for you. I pray that for me. I pray that for our church family. So God, I pray that you would do these things in us. God, I pray that you would blow up in us a view of grace. God, it would encompass everything, every situation. And God, I pray that you would help us see the severity of your grace. God, I pray that you would help us seeing that running is futile. God, that we can never outrun your pursuing grace. God, help us in that. God, will you gift us with repentance this morning? God, will you point out pockets of rebellion? And God, will you lead us to repentance? God, may we never get past an awe and a surprise of your grace. May it always be amazing to us. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.